Thank you for downloading this podcast of the Sunday Sermon. The Sunday Sermon podcast is a ministry of the Westerville Free Will Baptist Church located in Westerville, Ohio. And my name is Paul Ederling, and I am the pastor of the Westerville Church. And I would like to invite you to find out more about our church by visiting www.westervillechurch.org. And then also, if you would just take a moment uh, wherever you download your podcast to rate and and comment on our podcast that will help us to be more easily discovered um, in the podcast world. And now let's join the message. And today, from the book of James, I want us to think about what James has to say about the issues of our heart. And you'll recall last week I introduced this in James chapter 1. Or in, excuse me, last week we looked at John, First John chapter 1, and introduced this subject. And you'll re, be reminded that in John, the Apostle John said that all that is in the world boils down to two things, lust and pride. Lust and pride are the foundation of sin. And the presence of sin in this world is what causes us the problems that we have, whether it's our own personal sin or whether it's the sin of others around us and, and acting toward us. Whatever the case is, it is the presence of sin in this world that causes us the problems that we have. And you'll recall that last week when we looked at what John had to say about all that's in the world, he boiled it down to those two things of lust and pride. And today, I want us to focus on the subject of lust. I want us to dig into this idea of lust and what it is and how it affects us. And so let me just remind you that the, the, the word lust from a biblical perspective, simply means that it's a desire for someone or something, especially that which is forbidden. And you'll recall that in 1 John chapter 1, he actually breaks lust down into two categories or two descriptions. John introduces lust to us in terms of the lust of the flesh. The lust of the flesh is all that appeals to our senses. We have five senses. And there are things in this world that, appear, that appeal to us and to our five senses. Now, typically, when you think of the lust of the flesh, we, we normally, our minds directly go to sexuality and sexual immorality, but that's only a part of the lust of the flesh because the lust of the flesh includes all of our senses. It's anything that appeals to our five senses. But then John not only talked about the lust of the flesh, you'll recall he talked about the lust of the eyes. Now, when you think about the lust of the eyes, here's what you need to think about. Window shopping. How many has ever been window shopping? We used to walk down Main Street to go window shopping. Now we pull up the computer and we window shop through the computer, right? 
When you think about window shopping, why is it that something appeals to us? Well, of course, we know the advertisers know what they're doing, and so they're going to make it appeal to us. But I think there's something even deeper. When we go window shopping, what we say to ourselves is, we have to have this because it's the latest and the greatest. We have to have this because we need to keep up with the Joneses. There's no Joneses here today, right? Okay. Sometimes we say to ourselves, we have to have it because it's in style. For you ladies, think Lou LaRoe. For you men, I don't know, George, I don't know. I, I'm not a stylish person, I'm told, so there you go. But when you think about window shopping, oftentimes it's about finding something and seeing something because we want the best or we want something different or we want to keep up with someone else. And so John, last week we introduced to you these two descriptions of lust, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes. And in a biblical sense, lust is a desire for someone or something that appeals to us, but in a very real biblical sense, it also includes that which is forbidden by God. That which is forbidden by God. So this morning, we're going to spend time here in James chapter 1. If you know anything about the writing of James, what you know is it's a very practical book. James helps us understand how to live out our faith. He helps us understand what our faith looks like when we're living it out in everyday terms, not just when we're here on Sundays, not just when we're here on Wednesdays, but Monday through Saturday, what does it look like? And in chapter 1, James has introduced this idea of the testing of our faith. And the point of the testing of our faith is that it proves who we are. It proves whether or not we're truly a child of God or a hypocrite. But also, it not only proves who we are, but it also works in many ways to strengthen our faith. Much like going to a gym, if you're going to strengthen your body physically, you go to the gym or if you don't go to the gym, you do exercises at home. But one of the key things to strengthening our body is resistance. Your muscles never get stronger if you don't place them under a load of resistance. And I think that's the whole point in chapter 1 of what James is saying to us, is that there is a time in which your faith will be placed under resistance, and when it's placed under resistance, it will do two things. Prove who you are, and number two, if you're truly a follower of, of Christ and you have faith, it will work to help strengthen that faith. And so this morning, I want us to Look at verses 12 to 15, although we'll primarily spend our time in verses 14 and 15. 
But in verses 12 to 15, James actually lays out two different types of tests. One is a trial of our faith, and the second is a temptation of our faith. Now, while they're different in some ways, in the Greek, they actually come from the same root word in Greek, and so there, there's some similarities here, but I, I want you to listen to what James says to us, beginning in verse 12 of chapter 1. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one, verse 13, say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and, endure, and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. So in verse 12, you'll see that James talks to us about the trial and remaining steadfast under the trial. That's one type of the test of our faith, the trial of our faith. And he pronounces a blessing upon those who withstand the trial. Those who withstand the trial, meaning they don't crumble under the trial, meaning that they don't give up under the trial, those people are blessed because in the end, the great promise of verse 12 is that you will receive the crown of life, and it's the very crown of life that God himself has promised. But when you come to verse 13, he moves from the first type of test, which is a trial of your faith, to the second type of test of your faith, which is temptation. Temptation. And notice that the very first thing he says to us in verse 13 is, don't ever say that it is God who tempted you. You cannot place that blame upon God. However... That's the natural tendency of sinful humanity, isn't it? When God came looking for Adam in the garden, who did Adam blame? He blamed Eve. Who did Eve blame? She blamed the serpent. Ultimately, who did the serpent blame? God. It is a natural aspect of the sinful human race to want to blame God for the temptation that comes in our lives. And James is very clear, don't blame God. God is a perfect, holy, righteous, just being that exists higher than anything we could ever imagine in our lives. He's more holy than any amount of holiness we could ever imagine. He's more just and right than any amount of justice or rightness that we could imagine in our lives. And God sa or James says, don't blame God for your temptation. So that brings us to our focus today in verses 14 and 15. Notice what he says in verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. 
The word desire there, you'll see it again in verse 15. Both 14 and 15 contain that word multiple times. It is the word that could also be translated lust. And so James, in verse 14, is telling us that we are drawn away by our own lust, our own desires. And notice the two words that he uses here in verse 14. They're very important words. Lured and enticed. The word lured there simply means to be carried away, to be drawn out. Uh, when you think about this word lured, and actually both words, lured and enticed, but when you think about this word lured, think about putting the worm on the fishing hook or whatever your choice of bait is. Why do we do that? Because we put the hook with the bait into the water, hopefully close to where the fish are, and if they're hiding somewhere in a cove or whatever, we try to lure them away. We try to bring them away from where they are. That's exactly what James says about our temptation and our lust in our lives. It's when we allow lust to carry us away. It's when we allow our lust to bring us out from where we are. So in a very real sense, spiritually, when you are lured spiritually by your own desire, you're being carried away, you're being drawn out from a relationship with God, away from the intimacy that you would have with him in your relationship. You're being lured by your own lust and desires. And then notice the second word, enticed. The word enticed actually means to bait. So not only are you baiting the hook to draw the fish out, but you're baiting the hook to draw them out with the purpose of setting the hook when he wraps his mouth around the hook. You see, you've, you've hidden the hook inside the worm so that he would take the bait. And James is using this picture of fishing to say to us that when you are tempted, when you are tempted and give in to that temptation, it is because you have allowed your own lust to lure you, draw you away, and to take the bait. And that's why you cannot legitimately blame God for your temptation. Because God would not put the hook out there with the bait and intentionally draw you away from something that he already desires for you. He wants a relationship with you. He wants to have an intimate relationship with you. He wants you to know and to be satisfied in your relationship with him. And so he would never put something out there that would draw you away from himself and that would draw you away from what he has for you. He just won't do it. It's your own lust that's drawing you away. And, of course, the picture here is fishing that James uses and rightfully so, because we know that in that day there were many who made their living through fishing, so they would have understood what it is that James is saying to them. But the same type of baiting and hooking, that same type of thing happens 
in hunting and in other areas of our life and things that we do. Those of you who've ever had a mouse trap, that's why you put a mouse trap down. Those of us who have skunks in our neighbor's backyard, we catch a raccoon and we catch an opossum, but we never catch the skunk. We put bait in there to lure them away from where they are and to try to trap them. The story that Paul Harvey, for those of you who remember Paul Harvey, a well-known radio personality, Paul Harvey once told, and Chris Swinlenberg records this for us, Paul Harvey once told the story of how an Eskimo kills a wolf. The account is grisly, yet it offers fresh insight into the consuming, self-destructive nature of sin. First, the Eskimo coats his knife blade with animal blood and allows it to freeze. He then adds another layer of blood and another until the blade is completely concealed by frozen blood. Next, the hunter fixes his knife in the ground with the blade up. And when a wolf follows his sensitive nose to the source of the scent and discovers the bait, he licks it, tasting the fresh frozen blood, and he begins to lick faster and more and more vigorously, lapping the blade until the keen edge is bare. Feverishly now, harder and harder, the wolf licks the blade in the Arctic night. So great becomes his craving for the blood that the wolf does not notice the razor-sharp sting of the naked blade on his own tongue, nor does he recognize the instant at which his insatiable thirst is being satisfied by his own warm blood. His carnivorous appetite just craves more until the dawn finds him dead in the snow. It is a fearful thing that people can be consumed by their own lust. It is only God's grace that keeps us from the wolf's fate. It is our own lust that leads us away, baits us, and hooks us. The second thing I want you to see in this passage from James is that lust leads to both sin and death. Just like the wolf who gave in to the luring of the blood and eventually killing himself through his own desire, lust will lead us to both sin and to death. Notice verse 15. Then desire or lust, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. That's why death exists in the world. Death exists because sin exists. And the ultimate ending to sin is death. Death is a separation. Physical death exists because sin exists in the world, and physical death is the separation of the inner man from the outer man. 
But there's another death that you and I should be concerned about, and that is the eternal separation of ourselves from God himself. The very one who James is saying, don't blame him for your temptation because it's your own lust, it's your own desire that's drawing you away, hooking you, baiting you and hooking you. It's that lust that has caused you to bring forth sin in your own life, and that sin led you to that eternal separation from God. The picture here in verse 15 is that of giving birth. Now, just in the last couple of weeks, in our own family, there's been a birth. In the Hilbert family, there's been a birth. And in that birthing, there was a conception that took place first. The baby was conceived. And after the baby was conceived, there was a time period in which the baby began to grow and mature in the safety of the mother's womb. But that baby cannot stay there. One way or another, that baby will eventually come out of the womb through the birthing process, whether it be modern-day C-sectional surgery or whether it be through natural delivery, whatever the case is, that baby that has been conceived cannot stay where it is. And when your lust has been conceived, it brings forth sin. And when sin is in your life, it has to come out somewhere. And eventually leads you to death, according to verse 15. So the question I think we need to ask ourselves this morning is how do we overcome lust? How do we overcome lust? If lust is what brings forth sin and if sin is what brings forth death and if that's lust is a creation of our own desires, how do we overcome that? Well, first of all, I think James himself gives us the answer. Just a couple of pages over in chapter 4 and verse 7 of James, what you find is that James says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So how do we do that? Let's take that first part of James 4, 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. How, How do we do that? Well, remember the Corinthian church? They had a lot of problems. They had a lot of sin residing in them. And Paul deals with the Corinthian church lovingly but yet sternly. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, here's what Paul said to them. Take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Notice what Paul said to them. Take every thought. Do you ever think about your thoughts? Now, it seems kind of funny, doesn't it, that we would think about our thoughts? One of the greatest tragedies in the American society today is we don't take enough time to be in silence and solitude to be able to think about our own thoughts. Because when you think about your thoughts... You become more self-aware of what's happening in your mind. 
When you think about your thoughts, you, you, you start to understand why you're thinking what you're thinking. What is it that triggered what you're thinking? Why, why would I think this way? What, what is it about this that caused me to think this? We need to take time to think about our thoughts, and that's exactly what Paul is saying to the Corinthian church. Take every thought, not some of them, not just the passing thought, and let it go. Every thought. Take it captive to the obedience of Christ. I can only speak for myself. I can't speak for you. But I can tell you that this is a very difficult thing. Because we get so involved in our calendars and we get so involved in our schedules and we get so involved in what it is we're trying to accomplish in life that very rarely do we think about, will this lead us to obedience to Christ? I want you to understand something. As Christians, how you do your job ought to be for the obedience to Christ. How we do the work of ministry in this church ought to be for the obedience of Christ. How you relate to your spouse and to your children and to others around you, how you relate to one another ought to be for the obedience of Christ. Let me tell you something. If you're harboring hard thoughts and hard feelings towards someone, that's not for the obedience of Christ. If there's something in your history with someone that you just can't let go, you're not taking thought, you're taking captive your thoughts to the obedience of Christ because forgiveness says... I've let it go. I'll never bring it up again. When you're sitting at your desk doing work and you're tempted to bring up something on the internet that you know your company really frowns upon, you need to think that through and does this, what, it, what is it that would lead me to the obedience of Christ? When you're sitting in the classroom, student, and you're doing your schoolwork, or when you're at home, more likely, and you're doing your homework, and there's a tendency to want to just use a little bit of help. It's called cheating. That thought process is not obedient to Christ. Our lust draws us away, and if we're going to take care of our lust, if we're going to take control of it, I think we have to start where Paul starts, and that is take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Secondly, if we're going to submit ourselves to God, it would be good for us to pray Psalm 19.14. Here's what Psalm 19.14 says. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Do you see what the psalmist is saying in that prayer? Lord, because you're my rock. Lord, because you're my redeemer, when I couldn't save myself and you reached down and saved me, Lord, you're my rock, you're my redeemer, and so let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart, let them be acceptable in your sight because of who you are. 
problem with most of our habits of sin is that we've made God way too small. And when we make God way too small, there's a vacuum there that needs to be filled. And so what do we do? We begin to build our own God, which is why last week I told you that lust and pride lead us to idolatry. They lead us to rebellion because someone has to be God in our lives. And if God himself is too small, we will fill that void with something else. But let us never forget that he is our rock and our redeemer, and so we should let the words of our mouths and the meditation of our heart be acceptable in his sight. So how do you submit yourself to God? Take control of your thoughts to the obedience of Christ and continually pray in your heart that everything that comes out of you, the words of your mouth and the meditations of your heart, would honor him. But notice there's a second thing that James said in 4.7. He first said, submit yourself to God. Then he said, resist the devil. How do we resist the devil? Well, first of all, I think it begins with recognizing his tactics. Because just like you as the fisherman or hunter who's laying the bait out, Satan, the devil, is the fisherman and hunter. And he's laying the bait out. And he's laying the bait out to feed upon our own lust and our own desires. And so you have to recognize his tactics. Now, here's his tactics in three simple steps. He gets you to look at it. And the more you look at it, the more you begin to develop a lust for it, and the more you develop a lust for it, eventually you'll live in it. We've got biblical proof. What did he do with Eve? He got her to look at the fruit, and the more he got her to look at the fruit, the more she began to develop a desire for it, a lust for it, and it was, by the way, the forbidden fruit by God. God had forbidden it. And what happened? Eve began living in disobedience and rebellion toward God when she took the forbidden fruit. She looked at it, she lusted for it, and she lived in it. Same thing happened with Lot. Remember, Lot had his choice. And what did he do? He picked the area that was the brighter, greener area for his livestock. But the problem was when he set up his tent... His tent was facing two places called Sodom and Gomorrah. So the last thing Lot saw when he went to bed at night and climbed into his tent was Sodom and Gomorrah. First thing he saw in the morning when he got up, he was looking at Sodom and Gomorrah. He looked at them at night when he climbed in his tent. He's looking at them when he gets out of his tent of a morning. He's continually looking at them. And what happened was lust began to... well up within him, it began to develop within him, and eventually he began living in Sodom and Gomorrah. Looking, lusting, living. That's the tactic of the enemy. It started with Eve, we see it in Lot, and we even see it with David. Remember David? The beloved worship leader of the Old Testament? He spent time looking at Bathsheba, 
And the more that he looked at her, the more it developed a desire within him for her. He began to develop that lust, and as a result, he began living in adultery with Bathsheba. Looking, lusting, living. If you're going to resist the devil, you first and foremost must recognize his tactics. But secondly, I think we need to take to heart what James says, not just resist the devil, but we need to run from him. How do you run from him? Well, it goes back to what James said in chapter 4, verse 7. The very first thing he said was submit yourself to God. You cannot adequately resist the devil if you have not submitted yourself to God. There's a logical order here. If you flip the two and you put yourself before God or you put others before God or you put the devil himself before God, there's a logical order here that says, I'm going to run from God. But if I put God first, then I can run from the devil. God must be the top priority. Submit yourself to him and then resist the devil by filling your mind with God's word over and over again, fill it with God's word. Secondly, if you're going to run from the devil, you not only have to start in your mind and fill it with God's word, but secondly, I would say to you, you need to surround yourself on a consistent basis with God's people. Listen to me. If you take an honest, open, objective look at the church in the New Testament, we have devalued the church in the day in which we live. God brings the church together on a regular basis to help one another, to encourage one another, to build each other up, to even confront one another when there's sin in our hearts and in our lives. We are to confront each other and to help each other all for the glory of God. But in our day in which we lived, we've become so individualistic that we've devalued the church. Fill your mind. If you're going to run from the devil, fill your mind with God's word. Surround yourself with God's people because he's brought us together. And then thirdly, if you're going to run from the devil, you need to know your own weaknesses. And you need to take measures to not place yourself in a potentially compromising place. If, if you know you have a problem with certain types of movies... Don't watch the movies. And not just don't watch the movies. Don't have a device in your hand or in your house or anywhere in private where you could bring the movie up. If you know you have a problem with always wanting the best, but you've got your own account on Amazon so that your spouse or others in your house can't see what you're looking at and ordering, there's a problem there. There needs to be some transparency about what's happening. That's why I like the fact that in our household, when it comes to our bank account, we have, the same, we have the same bank account, we use the same bank, we both have cards hooked to the same account, and we can see what everybody else is purchasing. There's a measure of transparency there. It helps us keep ourselves out of those places of weakness and it's taking measures to help us in a potentially compromising place. Which, by the way, 
comes back to the whole idea of submitting to God. Because until you change your thought patterns and fill it with God's word, nothing else will change. Until you're willing to surround yourself with God's people and be willing to let each other help each other, nothing will ever change. So James in verse 7 of chapter 4 gives us the answer. That is, we are to submit to God, resist the devil, and then notice what he says at the end of verse 7 of chapter 4, and he, the devil, will flee from you. It is, not a, it is not legitimate for you to ever say as a follower of Christ, the devil just won't leave me alone. I can't get away from him. If it has become a habit in your life and if it is continually taking you over, it's because you've allowed it to and you've not submitted to God and run and resisted the devil. So the question I want us to ask ourselves this morning, are you controlling your lust? Are you dealing with it properly? Are you recognizing those weaknesses in your own self where lust comes in and dealing with it? And that doesn't just mean in a sexual way. It means in any sensual way. It could be the sin of gluttony. It could be the sin of cheating on your taxes. It could be the sin of cheating your employers at work, whatever it is. If you're involved in that type of sin and it's become a habit for you, it's probably because you've not resisted the devil by submitting to God and dealing head on with that lust. How are you doing? How are you doing with your lust? Thank you once again for downloading today's podcast of the Sunday Sermon. And once again, if you would just be so kind to rate and comment on this podcast, that will help us to become more discoverable in the podcast universe. And until next week, may God bless you. May you have a great week. Thank you.